This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Just a few weeks ago, Hannah Scandera stepped down as Secretary of Education for the state of New Mexico, ending her six and one half year tenure in that position. At the time, I think she was one of the longest serving state chiefs in the United States. Um, her record as secretary was exemplary, even while New Mexico schools were feeling the full force of the migration across the Mexican border during these past 10 years and more. She has been able to increase high school graduation rates, increase uh, advanced placement rates in the high schools, and uh, probably most important, she's uh, sustained the average state performance on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't congratulate a state for um, maintaining quality and not moving forward, but I think in, in light of the incredible changes that are taking place on our southern border, I think this is a special accomplishment that uh, needs to be acknowledged. And so uh, I feel very fortunate today to have Hannah Skandera here with me to talk about the challenges facing our schools. And uh, well, Hannah, you're back from uh, holiday. I am. It's and great to uh, be you've here. had time to reflect. So tell tell me, what do you think have been your greatest accomplishments as Secretary of Education in one of the most states undergoing one of the most significant transitions in the country. Yeah. Well, um, obviously I have a lot of proud moments, and um, but also lots of lessons learned. Um, and you said it right. I think uh, in stepping down, I was the second longest lasting uh, education chief in the nation at the time. And that's a gift because in, uh, when you're trying to transform education, at the end of the day, it doesn't happen overnight. And so time matters. Um, it's not the only uh, um, commodity that matters, if you will, but it certainly is a gift. And I think as I look back, a really simple um, truth uh, mattered immensely in New Mexico. And it was, it was and is the fundamental belief that the governor, Governor Susana Martinez, had and I also have, and that is that every child, every child can learn. And that sounds really simple, but actually, many people don't believe that. Uh, we've created, in, in so many cases, a, a paradigm of excuses that says, if our kids are poor, or, and I've had these, and I quote, uh, or they're disadvantaged in any way, maybe they're an English language learner, um, or um, struggling in some way that, uh, well, we should make some exceptions. And uh, while uh, many things, uh, whether poverty, which we, um, in New Mexico have a high rate of poverty amongst our students. Uh, we're 75% minority. Um, we have lots of reasons to create excuses. And you know what, New Mexico did. Um, but today, New Mexico is a believer that every child can learn and they're proving it. So what are the mechanisms that you put in place that helped you get through this process? Yeah. I, I think um, when you get to serve at the state level, there it's not very sexy to talk about this, but there are systems that you get to put in place that can change the incentives and, prov and provide transparency on what's really happening for every single student. And that's exactly what we did in New Mexico. We first, uh, we have 89 school districts, 
And at the time that I came into being the secretary, what that meant is we had 89 superintendents defining what was good for kids in education. That could be a big win if you have high expectations for kids. But it can also be a, a, a real problem if you begin to define great education by your sports outcomes only, for example. And so we put into place a, a school accountability system that measured both growth and proficiency. And in high school, many other measures like AP and, and um, remediation uh, rates, et cetera. Um, and we put in place higher expectations for all students around standards. We measured those standards at every grade. Um, we then moved on and said, what about our teachers? So we're, we're seeing how our students are doing. We have an objective measure that's, that has high expectations. Well, in our polling at Education Next, we find that there's a lot of public support for accountability, for standards, for testing. But we find, especially among teachers, increasing opposition. And there's been a pullback nationwide away from some of that. I know California has made a definite move. You know, that's not very far away from you. Right. Uh, so how are you able to keep the focus on an accountability system when you don't see that around the country? Yeah. I, you're right. Too often um, we lose sight of, of um, our focus. And in New Mexico, we were able to. Yes, put in a strong accountability system across the board, whether for students, schools, teachers, districts. But we recognize that that's just the foundation. You got to have it. If you don't have the foundation, most everything else is going to topple. But with that foundation, we were then able to focus on and ask the right questions. When you know how your kids are doing, you can ask, now what are we going to do about it? When you don't know how they're doing, and you, that means you don't have accountability, you can't even ask the right question and help the right kids. We got to the, the point where we had the right, what I call the right conversation. The right conversation is, what are we going to do now that we know where we stand? So what are some of the things that people decided to do once they got that information? So after building on that strong foundation of accountability, like I said, across the board, we have a very meaningful teacher evaluation, um, the best differentiator in the country today in regards to how our teachers are doing. That matters. Once we know that, we developed a robust teacher mentoring program where teachers who are participating in this program get two and three times the outcomes of the average teacher in our state. And if I didn't mention it before, in New Mexico, when I transitioned out at the end of June, all of our objective measures were up, every single one of them, for students, for teachers, for graduation rates, for AP, everything we could measure that's objective um, was headed in the right direction. So um, we were able to build on that and develop out this mentoring program, our best teachers mentoring our most struggling teachers, and those struggling teachers seeing double and triple the improvements. So let me ask about the evaluation system, because one of the things that we've observed in other states is that you ask principals to evaluate teachers and only 3% of the teachers are identified as unsatisfactory when in our polling we know that even the teachers themselves say it's more like 10%. Right. So are you getting a realistic evaluation system from the principals? Are they able to identify an a significant number of teachers that would be appropriate for the kind of mentoring that you're putting in place? 
Prior to our evaluation, 99.8% of our teachers were getting the exact same evaluation, all the same, not meaningful. When we implement our teacher evaluation, we have a principal observation portion, very important, but I wanna be really clear. We emphasize the importance of improved student achievement in our teacher evaluation. And that provides a bellwether and a baseline for whether or not our kids are improving. You need both the principal observation, but you must measure whether kids are actually learning and include that in the evaluation. We also include teacher attendance. We were ranked fourth in the nation, not in a good way uh, for teacher attendance. Uh, over 40% of our teachers were missing 10 days or more. We are now down to, we cut that by over half, saved $3.6 million in a single year on substitute teaching costs. Wow. Because teachers are in their classroom with their kids. Well, that's so, really critical. Well, it did, is. did you get any um, uh, opposition? Did the union uh, not like that particular policy? Was that a policy? trick question, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a fair amount of opposition. Um, it was, in fact, uh, that would might be an understatement. Uh, well, there how was, did you get teachers to come to class instead of reporting in sick? Well, um, there's a basic principle: what gets measured gets done. And um, uh, teacher attendance was only 5% of the teacher evaluation in our, in our state. And it, it swung the, the impact for our teachers that much, 5% in a single year. So um, at the end of the day- Because that's um, one thing they can control very easily. That's right. I can, that's right. okay, if I'm gonna get evaluated on this and I can go to work, I don't, just because I want to get my hair done doesn't mean that's right. if that's what I'm gonna do. That's right. right. It was very powerful impact. Um, you asked about the distribution of, uh, you know, were we seeing a, were we able to differentiate amongst teachers enough to make a difference in supporting and championing their successes? Yes, about just over 25% of our teachers in New Mexico are minimally effective or ineffective. Um, you'll see in most states that they're about 5%. We, so we're, we're differentiating on the lower end so that we can support, not so we make teachers feel bad, but so that we know and, and can share with them and give them opportunities to grow and improve. Well, you know, there's been a recent study of the, uh, a very similar plan in the, the District of Columbia mm -hmm. uh, that Michelle Reed put into place. And uh, the Stanford professor took a look at that and found that it really did identify the teachers who were effective and the ones who weren't. And the incentive systems that were put into place were really quite effective so agreed you must have uh, learned from that experiment in in Washington DC when you designed this plan absolutely I think it's really clear that those states and there are very few who have really held to the importance of true improved student achievement in their teacher evaluation not as an only measure but as an important measure are able to differentiate and actually provide incentives to your point whether it's around pay um, and supports for teachers who are struggling. Well, now let me ask you about another question. Bilingual education is an idea that I thought had gone off in one direction after the California population voters decided we don't want it out here and Massachusetts voters decided and NCLB started measuring people's proficiency in the English language. But I see it coming back. It's coming back to some extent in California. They're talking about doing it in Massachusetts. Um, what's the situation in New, in Mexico? New Mexico? 
So it never went away in New Mexico. New Mexico has made a commitment in their constitution to supporting bilingual education um, for their students, and I think it's the right commitment. The question is, what's the quality and what are the expectations of that bilingual education? And we actually just in the last year made a big effort. Um, we had several different ways uh, to, uh, to implement bilingual programs. We narrowed the number of ways because we looked at effectiveness and said some of these programs are not producing for our kids and we're not going to keep investing in something we believe in conceptually that isn't delivering for kids. So we've made a commitment. We have, um, we're one of, um, I believe, only two or three states in the nation of a bilingual seal for students who actually demonstrate that they're bilingual when they graduate. That seal goes on their diploma and on into the workforce or into uh, college. That's so true that's, bilingual education. That, that's, that's when you true. can really believe right. in it. When, that's right. When you, you do it the way the Dutch do. Yes. You get people who are truly bilingual and they can function in the workforce in two languages. That's a big leg up for, for someone. It's huge. So, um, so that's one thing you do. The SEAL, that's a very nice idea. So what, were, what are some of the other techniques that you use to really make a bilingual educational program effective? So we actually just raised our expectations around what it means to be proficient in, as a bilingual student, as a, as a young person in, in elementary school, all the way through high school, not just at the end with the diploma. And we've, we've um, raised our expectations around the timeframes to proficiency. Uh, we did that within the last year, believing that often we see students languish in bilingual programs, maybe for their entire education career, and not actually become bilingual at the end. So a, a hard and, and set expectation around a five-year um, uh, growth to proficiency uh, for our bilingual students, and we're measuring that and holding ourselves accountable for that. So I've heard some people say that the three-year, the federal government had a three-year expectation that you couldn't be in a bilingual program for more than three years. Is that incorrect? How, how does that so, impact you? Um, so they, they have actually shifted some right now. There, uh, Many states are turning in, as you know, their ESSA plans for the federal law. By the way, New Mexico is ranked number one in the nation for its plan after an external review. Well, that was the final thing you did in your yes, it, uh, yes, service to the people of New Mexico. Let's have right. a good plan and deliver on the plan. And, uh, so, uh, and in that plan... Um, the most recent research um, uh, across the nation has said a pr uh, somewhere between five and seven years. And so we chose the aggressive goal of five years to proficiency, and that plan is being approved by the U.S. Department of Education because it's aligned with good research and it's an aggressive goal. Well, that's an uh, amazing thing. Now, it, it, now it, have you actually tried the merit pay idea? We have. We have. How, how does your merit pay plan so it's been wildly popular. That's also a joke. Um, <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, okay. I, I will just yeah, tell I you. I fell for that one. <laughs> um, we started with a pilot of $7 million out of a $2.7 billion budget for education in New Mexico, and it shut the street that I work on down for an entire day because of a march for $7 million um, for a pilot. Um, but we have a conviction about equity um, and making sure we get our best teachers in our toughest schools. And so not only do we have merit pay based on excellence, we also pay additional for, for our high-performing teachers to go to our most struggling schools. 
And we do see that when our high-performing teachers go to our most struggling schools and we provide those incentives, that there is a difference when it comes to outcomes for our students, obviously. Um, and so I have a conviction and we'll continue to fight to go from a pilot to uh, a way of, of honoring and acknowledging excellence in the classroom by and for our teachers. And pay should be a part of that, but it has to be aligned to expectations for our kids. Well, changing the topic, let me ask you about charter schools. Uh, charter schools have made uh, major headway in the West and especially in the mountain states, um, probably more than anywhere else in the country over the last, say, five to 10 years. Um, is that happening in New Mexico? And how are they affecting the system and how are they doing? What, what's your assessment of the charter school world in New Mexico? So the governor and myself were very committed to pro providing choices for students. We, have a, a, we had um, systematic failure in some of our, our schools, chronically failing schools, and students who are in chronically failing schools deserve a choice. And uh, I will tell you I'm a big sister in the Big Brother Big Sister program, and my little sister was stuck in a chronically failing school. She was the top performer in her school and still not proficient. And her mom said to the principal, I just want my daughter to continue to improve. And her principal said, I'm sorry, she's a top performer here. So her mom chose a charter school. Uh, my, and my little sister is now at a high performing charter school because she needed a choice to begin to have the opportunities that other, maybe other students have. So um, in New Mexico, over 10% of the schools are charter schools, um, and there is a strong commitment to choice. However, um, there are many charter schools that, in my opinion, and I've been very vocal about this, should be closed. If they're not serving our students well, they should not remain open. They are serving our students. They're using taxpayer dollars, and I firmly believe that there's a stewardship um, that we should keep our promises. When we say we're going to deliver for kids, we should do it, and when we don't, we should do something aggressive about it, and that 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 belief applies to traditional schools, uh, um, as well, traditional public schools as well as um, public charter schools. Well, who has the responsibility for closing a charter school that's not performing? We have a public education commission, and they are the what's called an authorizer. So they approve charter schools, and they also can close charter schools. In New Mexico, every five years, schools are up for renewal, charter schools. And we have, while I have been in New Mexico, closed, I believe, about 10 schools to date. Um, and I believe that, that those have been the right decisions. These have been schools that have either mismanaged money or, or completely failed our students when it comes to outcomes. Um, we need to continue to pursue aggressive choice for our students. And um, New Mexico is on a path to do that. There's a real... Um, strong push to provide more options, high quality options for, for students. Um, and there is uh, also a push to say, let's not keep opening up schools if they're not delivering. So are there a lot of new applications for charter schools? Do you see more coming online to replace the ones that have been closed? We do. We see a, pr a pretty even ebb and flow of, um, you know, some uh, stepping out or being closed and then some opening. As I said, we're, about, we're between 10 and 12% of our schools are charters, and I would anticipate that over the next five years that will grow and, and that they will be high quality because there is a real commitment 
to high Well, some quality. people are saying that, you know, that's taking away money from the public schools. So has that issue come up in... Uh, of course it has. <laughs> and, and, and how do you respond to that um, uh, concern? Uh, we're, public schools exist to serve the public. Charter schools are public schools serving the public. And um, that our first and primary focus should be our kids, not our, not our buildings. And so at the end of the day, if there's a charter school that is a public school and they're serving our students, then they should be funded just as much as the, the neighborhood school down the street. Well, finally, let me ask you, Hannah, what would you say are the key lessons you've learned from this experience? You mentioned that, yes, we've had lots of successes, but we've had some lessons learned. What, what, are, the, what are the lessons that uh, a new state superintendent of schools may want to So I think uh, two or three things come to mind, and I've said one of them already. Know what you believe and be clear about it and keep your principles and, and expectations high. So I said earlier, every child can learn. Never lose sight of that. Secondly, never lose sight of the fact that you exist to serve students first and foremost. Not adults, not comfort, not a system, but kids. And if you wake up every morning and make every decision based on that fundamental baseline fact, um, it, will, it will steer you in the right direction when hard decisions come, and they do come. Uh, with politics, et cetera. I would say um, uh, build a good team. Nobody can do it on their own. And make sure you've established that. And, and um, the, the, I think one of the biggest things that I learned way too late, Paul, um, I mentioned the importance of having a strong accountability foundation. But getting to the next conversation about, yes, we have to measure so we know what to do, but we've got to do something once we, we see where we stand. And, I assumed something when I first came into my position. I assumed that if I, as the state superintendent, chief, secretary, whatever the title is, tell superintendents of maybe about a policy or uh, share ideas with them, they're going to tell principals. Principals will tell teachers and teachers will tell parents. And then we'll, you know, we'll all communicate. Um, well, it was the worst game of telephone I have ever played. I was lucky if we were still on the same subject by the time a parent heard what we were talking about. And um, I, I should have started much sooner in my career. We created um, uh, teacher leader initiatives where we have a teacher in every school that has direct communication and access to the public education department so that they get good information. Teachers are empowered and able to equip parents with good information as well. And it sounds really simple and almost laughable that I made that wrong assumption early on, but I see it happen all over our nation that we assume if we're you know, using the bully pulpit, if you will, that the, the right information will get out, and it rarely does. And parents, students, and teachers deserve to know. So get a good system in place when it comes to accountability, but then make sure you have the ability to reach the, the quote end user, the person that you're serving, our students. Well, thank you, Hannah. I don't think we can end on a better note than that. Very, uh, uh, it's been a, a genuine pleasure to have had this uh, conversation with you. Uh, this has been Hannah Scandera, the former Secretary of Education for the state of New Mexico. I'm Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. <laughs>